Welcome to the BS with Brad podcast, where we talk about trends that impact businesses and nonprofits. It's important to note that this episode will also be available in video. So it's the first time we're doing that uh, on the podcast. So it'll be available in both audio and video. Go to Business Sense with Brad YouTube channel uh, or Spotify. Please like and subscribe. And again, you can watch or listen. Our sponsor today, as usual, is myself. I've written The Motivated Worker. Uh, we're at a time where labor participation is at an all-time low, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I used over 200 sources, uh, but uh, it's written in a clear and concise way for the practicing manager. So again, if you need to get your workforce more engaged, uh, leaders and managers can use this text uh, quite quickly and efficiently to get your workforce uh, more motivated. On this episode, I'm welcoming Ryan Bartlett, who is the co-founder and CEO of True Classic Tees, which is one of the fastest growing apparel companies in the world. They started with $3,000 three years ago, and now their business has done over $250 million in sales, and it's worth about $700 million today. This episode uh, is actually a Zoom interview that Ryan did with my class and uh, we have it's an undergrad strategy class here at Milligan University, and there's roughly 30 students. As you can see in the video, most do not sit in the front row. This episode starts with his backstory. Both of us grew up in Cadillac, Michigan. It transitions to uh, his brief uh, time at Michigan State University, uh, and then after failing there, um, he did a bunch of different things, as you'll see, and then he ended up becoming this uh, the co-founder and CEO of True Classic Tees. It's a quite a quite an interesting story. Uh, this episode we focus on marketing strategy uh, in particular. We're going to talk about uh, ideas such as conversion rate optimization, incrementality tests, uh, SEO, customer acquisition and retention. Uh, supply chain strategy. And what I found most interesting is the role of artists at all levels uh, or in all facets of his business. So how important artists are. And um, we often don't hear, think about artists uh, in business other than perhaps like graphic design or something. But uh, that, that, that part was extremely interesting to me. Uh, we also talk about his future plans. Enjoy. So you went to Michigan State and flunked out. What happened with that? So I just realized that like my head was not in academics at the time. I was definitely a music guy, as you know, we both were. And I just really, everyone kept telling me, you got to follow your passion. You got to, you know, you got to do what you're best at. And I was not good at academics at all. I was, I was lucky to get by. Um, I was good at memorizing so I could get by on testing, but like, I hated academics. And I just, the first year I, I didn't go to like probably 80% of my classes. So that was that. So, you know, full sale, you've heard of full sale, right? What's that? You've heard of full sale. It's uh, like, yeah, uh, yeah. So is it in Florida school. or something? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's in Florida. So basically I convinced my mom, I'm like, Hey, if you help me, you know, I know I wasted all this money going to Michigan state for a year, but just give me one more chance to go get my associate's degree in, uh, audio engineering. And, uh, and they bet on me and they just said, okay, we'll, we'll give you one more shot. After that, you're paying for all your degrees. If you want to go any further, we've already wasted all this money on you. You, you failed us. So now it's time to show and prove. So I get out there, I get my degree. After that, um, I thought Atlanta was the next closest step. Atlanta had a huge music industry, as you know. 
So um, I went out there thinking I was going to work with like Outkast and Luda and all these like amazing ATL artists. And I was basically cleaning bathrooms at like the smallest, tiniest studio in town making zero money. And it was brutal. Um, But it taught me a lot about what the music industry actually looks like on the inside. And it's just not as glamorous as I thought it was. Um, But I started... Uh, I, I at least had some ability to make money through my musical skills. I was playing piano at like restaurants and I was getting paid by producers to come in who were just like beat makers. I would come in and lay down some keys for them or play some guitar or whatever it was. And, um, and yeah, so I did that for a little while. I couldn't really make enough money to live though. So, um, I mean, this is kind of a long story. I can keep going if you want. That's all good. Well, we got till 1240, so you could do it. Okay. Okay. So long story short, you're got in five minutes. You're in it. I'll get it all in, in five minutes. Yeah. So basically I was just like, this is going to be rough for a while. And then I, all my friends out there in Atlanta were playing poker and poker was kind of exploding at the time. This was like Chris moneymaker days. Um, and so I got very intrigued because all my friends were doing it. And I picked it up pretty quickly and I got pretty good and I started beating people. Uh, At first I was just getting, you know, I was just, I was losing everything I had. And then I started winning. And then I thought, of course, as does anybody who starts making money, they're like, oh, I'll just do this now. I'll just, you know, move to this because here's the money and, and it's making me more than playing instruments. So I started kind of following poker and I started making a pretty decent living at it. And, um, but it still just wasn't that much, but I was like, you know, what's the next step? Should I go to Vegas, try to do this for a living? And so I did, I went out there with like three grand to my name, thought it was all the money in the world at the time and went broke after like two months. And I was like back to square one basically. Um, and then I couldn't really make it in the music scene in Vegas either because the guys that were playing piano at like the Bellagio had been playing for like 40 years. So they just like blew me away talent wise. They were so good. Um, so that was kind of a rude awakening. So I went into work into the nightclub industry and that went well for me for about a year and a half, but I got sick of that. And I was finally just like, I didn't want to be that guy working at the club at like 40 years old. So, um, so from there I went back to school. I went back to Florida, went back to full sale. I was like, all right, I'm going to try to make the music thing work again. Went back there, got my bachelor's in music business um and then from there is when i made the trek out to california and that was kind of my final destination so i got out to california i started doing my masters online through full sale masters in uh business and um i got it and then i could not get a job it was like the most insane thing i had all this all this like debt piling up and no way to make money and uh you know, thank God I had some computer science skills to where I was able to land a job doing like some web development, graphic design, co- content writing. And that was kind of my first real job in LA, but it, man, it took like 150 resumes just to get that 30 K a year job. And, uh, and I was kind of off and running into the SEO world from there. And then once I figured out how much money there was in SEO, that's where the real value was, was ascending traffic essentially. Um, I started developing my SEO skills and, uh, and then, um, halfway through that job, probably like six to eight months with into that job, I got a call from a famous music producer and I was like, Oh, here's my chance to get back in it. I was so pumped. 
And I turned and, and so I quit SEO. And then this guy was just a terrible person to work for. Um, I was basically a taxi driver. You know, being a personal assistant in LA is one of the worst jobs of all time. You so, can't tell us who it is, huh? Uh, yeah, I can tell you. I can tell you. Um, well, his can, name yeah. is Alex. Alex the Kid. He was he produced "Love the Way You Lie" by Eminem and Rihanna. Um, he produced um, "Imagine Dragons." I did end up getting on Imagine Dragons album uh, on a couple songs, um, which was cool. Uh, but singing. So, which is like, I'm not even really a singer, but I just happened to be in the studio and they needed, uh, my vocal range was kind of perfectly in between the, uh, the studio engineers and Dan's who's the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. So, um, I got on a couple tracks over there, but, uh, yeah. So I started SEO direct while I was working for this guy. Cause my life was terrible. And so I started working my way up to page one of Google. And um, for like SEO Los Angeles, SEO company Los Angeles, all these keywords that would bring in tons of you know, leads for me. And uh, eventually I started closing clients and then I started stacking up the clients and the rest is kind of history. Can you give us a one minute overview of how True Classic got started and how you funded the initial phases of it? Yeah. So it really got started out of my curiosity of kind of getting into e-com. I really knew that I wanted to build an e-com project and kind of see what it could do. I just felt like, you know, if I was given the chance to start something great, potentially, uh, I would just outwork my competitors. I would be a lot more thoughtful. And more importantly, I would be more creative in my approach of kind of, you know, taking care of customers in all facets of the business. So the t-shirt thing just kind of happened very organically. Um, I kept uh, having issues with feeling like, um, guys were kind of being neglected on the fit of the shirts, but also I was tired of paying uh, a premium for really high end t-shirts. So, you know, really high end t-shirts were like 40, 50, 60, $70. And, uh, I was paying like 35 at the time. And I just remember thinking like, there's gotta be a lot of people that feel like me that are, don't want to like wear the Hanes of the world, which are the bottom of the barrel, but they also don't want to pay like James purse pricing. So I was like, I just wanted to play in that little middle white space and, um, and see if there was a total addressable market somewhere in there. And so that was really, it, it wasn't anything crazier than that. I just wanted to, it was like a side project. I just wanted to launch it, see what happened and uh, see if it could get legs and um, it just absolutely exploded out from under me. And I really didn't know kind of what I was in for at the time. But, you know, here we are three years later, 250 million in sales. Uh, one of the fastest growing D2C companies of all time, bootstrapped and profitable. Um, so to speak to the funding portion of it, um, you know, the great part about this business is that I started it with almost nothing. Uh, but what I did have in terms of, um, education was insanely important to getting this thing off the ground and running it um, profitable from the beginning. So, you know, I knew when I started it, having done digital marketing for a decade, that was really uh, what saved me a lot of money. So I was able to come in and essentially put those dollars to work for me from day one, meaning I wasn't spending into the ecosystem frivolously. I knew where to put the money and I knew how to make the money work for me. And that was performance marketing, AKA Facebook, essentially. 
So Facebook does an unbelievable job with their AI of finding the customers for you. It takes your budget, you do some, you know, a little bit of targeting and they do most of the work for you, which, you know, had I started this business 20 years ago, there's no way it could have achieved this kind of level this quickly. But putting that money to work um, allowed me to get a measure on what the return on ad spend should look like. So ROAS was like really, we lived and died by kind of the blended ROAS of the business. Um, you know, so basically we took $3,000, which is all we we had to start with. Um, and we pushed it into some of it in inventory. Some of it went into Facebook ads. And then as the the sales started generating from the Facebook ads, I just kept taking that revenue and rolling it over back into the business. Same with the profits. We didn't need to take any money out, uh, which was great, which means we didn't need to go in debt. We also didn't need to hire anybody. So we were doing it all bootstrapped and the three of us were doing the work of probably like 15 people, which is how it normally is when you're starting out and you have a startup and you're just, you're just trying to make it work and you're trying to grind it out. And, um, I'm not a I'm not a big believer. You know, I don't come from Silicon Valley. I'm not a big believer in just raising a bunch of debt or money and then just burning through it for the sake of uh, acquiring customers. I wanted to start small and profitable and make sure we had a real business first before we started um, taking on creditors or debt or anything like we have now. Um, so it's kind of a different ballgame once you get to my phase where your your company is worth somewhere between. 600 to 800 million, what ends up happening is you have to end up taking on debt for the sake of inventory financing, or you raise money to expand. Uh, like we have five retail stores now, and we're looking to roll out another 25 to 50 over the next year. So you need capital for that. And you can't just pull that out of nowhere. It has to come from somebody. So now we're at the stage where we're, we're potentially raising some money for, for some growth initiatives. Um, so yeah, I know I went on a little long on that one. No, that's all good. And we talk a lot about debt to equity in here, but since you're you're private, so like you're probably internal equity. Do you have a ratio that you try to keep of, you know, personal investing versus the debt load? Like, is there a ratio that you look at? And not again, really. Not a script here. I'm just throwing that out. But yeah, no, I, there, there's not like kind of a magic number. Um, we are, you know. You basically, whatever you can afford, essentially, is, is the way we look at it. It's like, it, you have to pay your bill. To answer your question, there's no kind of magic number. It's just really kind of like, what can the business afford to pay interest debt-wise? And um, and then you have a cap too. Like, you can't just keep borrowing forever, right? So you have to find that balance between uh, sales and kind of cash flow, and then what you can afford to pay on the debt side. All right. Awesome. And I think earlier you mentioned uh, you're kind of in the middle of regarding price because you said you weren't like the highest end, but obviously not a low cost. So I'm like best cost or middle. Um, I've yeah. seen a lot. And this might just me not uh, might be me not knowing the industry too well, but it seems like you've got some competitors coming out of the woodwork now and maybe trying to copy your model. Um, are you, how are you handling that? And does, I guess your costing strategy, do you have to keep finding lower, you know, like margins as far as the supply chain goes. I don't know if that makes, if that's clear, but like, what yeah, thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I don't worry about the competitors because, you know, ultimately they can't out creative me and the creative component is probably the most impactful to the business because it bleeds into every facet. 
And I just think if you are in a space, whether it's health or consumables or vitamins or whatever it is, if you can just continually out creative people, and by that, I mean, come up with better ads, come up with better messaging, come up with a more succinct uh, simplification of your website, um, treat customers right, uh, and, and how you're creative with that approach. It just really bleeds into everything. And that was a part of the reason I started this company is because I was looking at the landscape, the people that were playing in this space, and I was just horrified. I was like, these guys have no idea what they're doing. And I'm just going to come in here and I'm going to blaze through them so quickly. They're not even going to know what, you know, how, what hit them. And then sure enough, you know, we, we did in a, in one year, I'm sorry, two years, what none of them were ever able to do, which is we got to a hundred million in two years. And, um, those companies are, are just now cracking like 40 million a year or 30 million a year on year eight. So it just goes to show you that intentionality and really going deep with the customer is the whole game, essentially. It's just you got to give the market exactly what it wants. Um, and that that is not just about product. That's about marketing. You know, we make a lot of comedic ads, a lot of funny ads, and that resonates really well with customers. And they also appreciate it, too. In a world where everyone's just trying to sell, we're just trying to make you laugh. So customers see that, they understand it, and then it creates an emotional connection with them. And they remember it. So when they think of true classic, they think of happiness. They think of funny. They think of uh, lightheartedness. And uh, it really matters. But um, God, if I spent any time thinking about my my uh, competitors, I wouldn't be doing right by my customers or my internal employees. So I think that you know, no matter what the idea is, it could be anything. If you can just improve it and then put your blinders on and just execute and be a lot more creative than everybody around you. Or if you're not creative, you hire a bunch of creatives. And I don't mean agencies necessarily. I mean, in-house people that are just thought leaders who can come in there with ideas and maybe they have a music background. Maybe they have a, an art background or they're into painting, but those people to me are some of the most worthy people in the organization because without ideas, you're just at, you're just the gap right? You're just basically everyone else. You're, you're old Navy and you're just printing stuff on shirts and, and calling it a day. And, you know, we just try to always be different and, and execute on that. Well, yeah. And this is just a side note uh, um, that especially here at Milligan, you have a hard time selling the art side of things to students or the graphic design or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of the times the business tie-ins aren't there because uh, you, you, you assume you're going to be a painter that's selling at a you know, uh, not selling anything, but you're saying the art side is extremely important for on the creative side, which I find interesting. Not just the creative side in all facets. It really, like I can give you examples of situations with my employees where creativity has played a part. There's contract negotiations where creativity plays a part. There are meetings that I have with bankers and private equity companies where creativity plays a big part. It's amazing. The more I do this, the more I realize how it really is the through line between almost everything in the org, um, operations, site merchandising, it all like the great ideas that come out of it that make things better are, are built on creativity. They're built, they're built on net new ideas. So if you can just live in that world a lot more, I try to always get my people to be 
like I have a channel in our Slack just called hashtag ideas and people just funnel things in there all day, every day about let's do this. Let's try this. And I love to keep that momentum going because it's just so important to the growth and especially standing out in a commoditized market. If you're not creative, you're just never going to break through. You know, you might get a few million a year kind of business, but you're never going to get to my levels just kind of doing the status quo or just doing what everyone else is doing. All right. Um, so I, I have noticed that, uh, again, you were mentioning Facebook. I'm not sure if that's the biggest bang for your bucks. There's all the social media, but could you speak to the social media side? And then I also see that you respond to almost everyone that's in there, like that comments. And I don't know if it's you um, particularly or like, a, you know, your staff, but it's interesting, even the haters or the cancelers you guys even respond to. I find it, mm -hmm. I just like going through your comments section. That's great. Like what's I know. Have you seen? So how do you go about that? And have you actually got any ROI out of that? Like, can you actually track sales that come from that interaction? Are you talking about organic social or paid well, pretty, social? Yeah. So like if you, let's say you have an advertisement and then you get people that are commenting. What I've seen is that you will engage with them in the comments section and then you'll get yeah. some random person that says, I'm going to buy from you now because you handled that you know, the troll, like exactly. you actually see ROI out of, cause usually companies will stay out of the comment section. Like they'll post yeah. out of there. You got, you're like right in, like throwing blows in a good way. Like, I don't know what yeah. you on that. It's listen, it's a missed opportunity if you're not engaging with the audience. That's the way we look at it. And I, I was doing that from the very get go. And so now the people I hired have that same attitude where they're very sarcastic. They get in there and they chop it up with anybody. They make jokes. They try to make light of people that are trolling or, or, um, you know, talking bad about true classic or whatever it is. But, you know, you, you also have to think about the way the algorithm works. It's based on engagement. So the more engaging it is, the more organic lift that you get out of it. So it really benefits you to, talk to people on there. Plus, a lot of people want to know how you handle things. They want to know, like a lot of them have questions about the product. And a lot of times, if you go through the comments, you'll see that one of their questions will get answered. So um, people get a lot of value out of that comment section because people will literally say, what is a large, you know, I'm, I'm 6'2", 180. Is, am I good to be a large? And then we'll reply with, yeah, that's the perfect spot. Like you're definitely a large. And then someone in the comments will see that and be like, oh, I'm 6'2", 180. And, um, and now I'm going to buy. So there, there's a lot of value in that comment section, aside from just replying to the trolls uh, and just helping people convert and get more information to make their buying decision a little bit easier. But yeah, I'm all about getting in there. And, I, and I'm not afraid to, and I'm not afraid to talk to customers that are upset. I don't run from that. I really look at it as an opportunity. I think most people want to want to block people. They want to run. They want to call them uh, idiots or whatever and say that they don't understand. To me, it's an opportunity to turn that person around and say, okay, what's really bothering them? And I will tell you that most of the times on Twitter where someone has you know, said something to me or, or mentioned the company in a bad way, the more I dig in, the more I, when the more I figure out that this person is just going through something, it's not that he hates true classic. If you go look at his timeline, he's bitching about every company. So this guy's going through something. And there's been times where I've reached out and the more I talk to the person, the, the more I get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. Like, Hey man, they'll like, eventually I'll break them down and they'll be like, 
yeah, I'm sorry, man. Sorry that I went after you guys. You know, my dad has cancer. I just found out a couple of weeks ago. And, and then it all just starts to make sense. So when you see those people out there, I think you just need to give them, um, you need to understand that they're definitely going through something. So I just lead with empathy all the time. And I just, I understand where they're coming from. And it's also an opportunity to make things better. I mean, I don't sit here and pretend that I have it all figured out. I am constantly evolving the product. I'm evolving our, our flows, our automation, our website. So I welcome the feedback because if you don't get it, then the people just don't care, right? You want to take that information that they're giving you and you got to make something of it and you got to turn around and make your site better for them. Now, some people you're never going to please, and that's just kind of the way of the world, but man, those, that feedback is so valuable. And most times if they're bitching about something, they're right. And, and they're, and they're saying it for a reason. So I don't shy away from that. I take it as good feedback or bad feedback. And I take it back to the team and we talk about it. Sometimes it's just nonsense. A lot of times there's some truth to it and we dig in and we just, we make a better product and it makes for a better business. All right. More of a lighthearted one here. What, do you know what celebrities are uh, wearing your stuff? I, um, I thought I saw uh, D Snyder from twisted sister, which my students yeah. probably they're Gen Z or so they probably, do you guys know? Twisted they don't sister? know that. I got a few head nods and some blank stares. So uh, yeah. Do you know who, like who's wearing? Yeah. Who are you um, Rocky. Has anyone heard of Rocky? Sylvester like, Stallone? Yes. He's wearing true class. Um, yeah, a lot of people are. I mean, listen, we're really kind of the modern day uh, Levi's at this point. And so we have a lot of celebrities, a lot of athletes, too, that love our product. And, um, you know, Chris Pratt. Um, I mean, there's just so many. There, there's there's a lot that we don't know, too. We, we find out later uh, after the fact that they're that they're big fans and or, you know, they want to invest in the company or something like that. So. We get it all the time. Uh, and there's probably a lot that I just don't even know about that I haven't even bothered to look. But um, yeah, D. Snyder. I've had a lot of conversations with uh, Scooter Braun. Uh, Scooter is, you know, he's Bieber's manager, Ariana Grande's manager. You guys probably know who he is. Uh, had the big feud with Taylor Swift. He's a huge shoe classic guy. He actually wants who, who to invest hasn't in had the a company. Feud with Swifty, you know? Yeah, I know. So yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some there's some heavy hitters for sure that are big fans of ours. So we just, you know, we welcome everybody though ultimately. Okay. Um, let's go shift to supply chain because of course marketing's more about the uh there's the social media side, of course, or the front end, and then of course, then the supply chain's got to keep up. And I see that you've been expanding warehouses. How first of all, uh I can mix these. One, do you know if you're like contract manufacturing or licensing um i guess on the technical legal side and then where are your warehouses and does that have anything to do with supply chain being you know kind of questionable right now we don't have we only have one warehouse in la and that is for returns so when people you know returns is like three percent of the business so that is an unbelievable amount of shirts per month that we get back and we have to put them somewhere so we put them in a warehouse here in la but we don't actually house any inventory. Everything from China, Egypt, Turkey, um, Bangladesh, everywhere that we manufacture gets shipped directly to Tijuana. And um, we have a fulfillment center down there. And then what they do is they take that and they truck it up to Reno, Nevada into another warehouse. So they basically just truck up what they need out of the Tijuana warehouse 
And it avoids us having to pay like a tax or a tariff for it to go directly into the US. It's kind of a workaround, which is a nice little hack. Um, so it, the company is called XB and they do uh, like MeUndies and Bonobos and a lot of big companies, but the savings are amazing. And, um, and, and we've used a bunch of different 3PLs over time and most of them have been a complete disaster. Um, but, you know, we haven't really had, and, and then by the way, they're unbelievable. They can just ramp up uh, at the drop of a hat. So like, for instance, this last couple of weeks, we've been really ramping up and doing uh, like a million dollar days where we have 10,000 orders in a day or whatever. And, and, and they can go from like 50 people on the line to like 300 people on the line overnight and really ramp up the talent over there to fulfill the orders on time, which has been just an unbelievable and very scalable um, company. And I just, I really love them for that. Um, but on the supply chain, listen, we, we've been lucky. A lot of our people that we work with are one of the, they're some of the bigger guys and they don't run into as many issues as most of the other guys. So the bigger they get, the easier it is. Um, the more savings we can get, the more they can hold inventory for us if we don't need all of it. Um, but we, we haven't really had any issues, not because they're so seamless, but really because we've over-ordered and essentially we have all the inventory we need for this year already. So we're not living in this world where we need something every three months or every two months. And if we did, I'm sure we would be running into more issues, but just the simple fact that we have so much inventory already, you know, we, uh, and that was not by design, by the way, we didn't mean to have too much inventory. That was the fault of, well, myself ultimately for making the decision, but, um, you know, the people we had in our planning department, our FP&A and uh, financial planning um, and all our analysts just really made a big bet that was a little too big. So we're still kind of weeding through that. Um, but yeah, we, we've been lucky on, on that side. Now you can always get around a lot of those supply issues by overpaying on other things. So for instance, everything's pretty much done by boat. I don't know how much you guys know about um, how the supply chain really works, but they make everything in the country and then they have to ship it by boat. And the boat takes like 30 days. It's insane. Um, but then they have what are called fast boats. They go like three weeks. So it saves you a week. And then if you really want to get it fast, you can massively overpay and do uh, planes, which are like two weeks. But you're paying, you know, like $1.50 extra per unit, which at scale is an unbelievable amount of money. So yeah, it just depends on how badly you need product. All right. It, uh, I think inflation uh, in theory is cooling off, but is that, uh, again, I'm kind of going off script here, but has inflation impacted you guys at all? Or is your business, if you're talking about being elastic or what have you, or, you know, as the inflation goes up, do your sales go down congruently or what have you, is that been a big factor for you or is it not been kind of negligible? Yeah, it's been negligible. I, I think that people... We definitely noticed that when we raise prices, um, nobody seems to care. Like everyone's just used to everything going up. I've kind of been a proponent of not raising prices. I really don't want to, I like where our prices are at. Um, but, you know, I get a lot of um, people in the organization that really want to keep moving up the margins continuously. It's just better for the business, obviously. But I don't like doing it to the customer. I just think uh, I think we're good where we're at. But 
yeah, every time we've moved them up, it's been like literally zero, zero people have said anything. So I think it just speaks to the fact that a lot of companies are moving their pricing up um, and, and people understand it. I mean, the cost of everything has gone up. So, and when we move things up, it doesn't, it's not like some egregious number. It's like maybe a dollar or two per shirt or something like that. But at scale, that makes a tremendous difference for the business. But from a customer standpoint, they don't really care to, to pay an extra dollar or two. All right. Well, I only have one uh, other question written down here, unless you guys have anything, let me know. Um, so as far as like SEO for your uh, in search, search engine op optimization, or if there's, I don't even know if there's anything new other than that. Like how, I guess on the website side versus Facebook, because Facebook's driven by engagement. Um but how do you get to drive people to your website? Like, are there tricks of the trade that are not, you know, that you don't, you don't mind giving away or even just basics? Yeah, no, I tell everyone everything because the, the reality is, is that no matter what I tell everybody in this room, it is very difficult to execute on what I'm saying. So even if I said, it's all Facebook, what does that mean? Well, that means that Facebook is the engine, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to come up with creative that's going to resonate with the customer. It doesn't mean that once you get them to the website, you're going to be able to convert them. It doesn't mean that your product is going to be amazing. So everything has to be done on the groundwork before you even think about sending traffic to the website. Um, I think a big thing that people overlook is CRO, conversion rate optimization. It's probably one of the, the most important things you can do on your website is really refine it and make sure you understand what a, a true customer funnel is supposed to look like from top to bottom, and then how you make it e easier for the customer to check out, essentially. And you make it more secure, you give them more upsells, more offers, drive up the AOV. Um, it's just super important to the health of the business to have that AOV continually moving up into the right. So, uh, but traffic wise, I would say our three biggest sources are Facebook, Instagram is number one, you know, they're kind of the same, same company. Um, and then I would say YouTube and Google are kind of number two. Um, and then TikTok would be third. Um, and then after that, it's, it's like a single percentage share between word of mouth, podcasting, um, organic searches. Um, there's a lot of like smaller percentage ones, but I would say that if you need, if you have a product and you want to test it in the market and you just want to see if it's, you know, worthy of, of the market liking it or not. I would just put your money into Facebook. If you have nothing else to spend on, Facebook is by far and away the most impactful. You really don't need anything else either. Once you're at our level, you need everything. But when you're just starting out, the most important thing is to test on Facebook and see if you have a viable product for the market. If it doesn't work, then that means that you don't have the product for the market, essentially. It doesn't mean that Facebook doesn't work. It means that what you are offering the market doesn't work. Either the price doesn't work, the creative doesn't work, the product itself doesn't work, it's not the right fit for the market, whatever it may be. And you got to start kind of working backwards from what those things could be. But traffic-wise, you can live and die through Facebook. You know, Facebook's not going anywhere. It's always been proven to be the best platform for e-com. And it will continue to be uh, for the foreseeable future. I don't know where that's going to go, but I can promise you that wherever the attention goes, we will go and we will just keep funneling great, valuable content to people. Um, 
but yeah, there's no tricks to the trade. I would say that SEO is important. Um, word of mouth is important. Uh, Google, YouTube, all those things are important, but I could shut all of those off tomorrow and just have Facebook and we would still be doing, you know, four to 500 K a day, no problem just on their backbone of AI and um, their platform just being the most robust that exists right now. That may change in the future, but for now, we're still living in a Facebook world and we do a lot of incrementality testing. I don't know if you guys know what that is. Are you guys familiar with incrementality? Anybody? I'm getting a bunch of head shakes, so that's a no. <laughs> so, I've head shake side to side, not up and down. So that's what I was trying to say. Okay, got you. So incrementality is essentially the measurement of the lift. So the lift being, you know, is there an impact? Is there a correlation to spending and then sales being created? So you have to be able to measure that lift. And it's very important because then you understand how your advertising dollars are working for you. So if you're spending on TikTok infinitely and you do an incrementality test and it comes back that the money is just not as incremental as it appears to be, then you have to wean yourself down on TikTok. Now, every time we run a test on Facebook, it's through the roof. It's the most incremental to the business and not just on the prospecting side, by the way, the retention side as well, which is another important part of the business. Um, CRM and email and SMS is, is really the EBITDA of the business and where you drive most of the net profits, which is re on the repeat side. So Facebook drives both. They drive you new customers, but they also, you send ads to people that are existing customers and it brings them back to the website to purchase again. So again, we're living in a Facebook advertising world and I don't see that changing. I just see other platforms kind of adding to it. I think maybe TikTok will get there someday, um, but they need more engineers. They need more people. They need more focus on, on how to make that technology the way Facebook did. And they've just done an unbelievable job. And I don't think people realize how much work goes into um, how many engineers they have working behind the scenes on Facebook's ad platform. It's just, it's unreal. You, you would be shocked at how many people actually work in that department because it's just so important. It's so important to their their, their, their bills and their, uh, their, their capital and the way that they make money, you know, without Google search, Google makes no money without Facebook's algorithm. They make no money. So, um, super important. Yeah. We've talked before about like, uh, the coolness of something like, you know, TikTok or whatever it might seem like that's where it's going or trending, but that doesn't necessarily mean your ROI is going to be there. Um, I know for sure Bing is pretty much, uh, out of the picture I'm imagining, um, do you think Bing's ever going to try to get back in the game or are they, I mean, are they, I don't know. They seem like they're trying to reinvent themselves. I just, I don't see that happening. They just don't have the market share. Like that's what it comes down to. It's like, I, we spend a little bit of money on Bing. Um, what we find on Bing is that it's generally an older crowd. It's like my dad's generation. Like they, they're more being Yahoo type people. And my generation is like Google, pretty much all Google. Um, so yeah, we just, we don't, we spend, you know, a little bit of money there, but that's just because we have search volume people are searching for us. So we're kind of capitalizing on that, but yeah, I don't see Bing really, um, now with chat GPT, you never know, you know, I know that they're integrating that into the search engine and Microsoft is, um, making it native 
that may end up being uh, a way for them to gain market share. I guess we'll have to see how it plays out and what kind of results that it brings, but um, there's definitely something there, but you know, as it stands today, yeah, it's just not really useful for us. But if you had money to spend like a, if you, a different industry, you're saying di- industry or company, if you had to go outside of clothing personally, like where would you go or like what, is there anything else you'd want to dabble in? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've always been, I'm really obsessed with um, products that you have to continually buy. So vitamins, wipes, things like that. Things that you just have to have all the time. Um, And anything health related. It's like a circular flow. Like you got to buy a monthly or something. Exactly. And nothing's better than health, honestly. Like that is forever. You can almost... You can't go wrong in the health industry, whether it's making food that's better or or, or drinks that are more vitamin uh, intensive or whatever it is. To me, the health industry is completely wide open still, even though everyone's done everything, you can still come in and make something better and you can market it better and you can give more to the customer and you can find a way. And that's what I would do. If I went into vitamins, I would have next level marketing, I would be doing so many campaigns with so many influencers and really like finding ways to get it to people and make it resonate with the customer. Um, There's a lot of great companies out there that are doing it right, in my opinion, better than the apparel space for sure. Uh, Definitely very competitive. But um, yeah, the consumable markets, like I would really love to make um, like an energy drink that was healthy, similar to kind of like Celsius or some of the other ones. Um, I just see those spaces as such monsters and, uh, man, if you can find something that really resonates with people and you can market it well and, and fill out a niche or a void, you can really be onto something. But, you know, again, it all goes back to like, I, I don't get taken back by like, if I were to start something and I look at an industry it's like everything's already been done for the most part. So it seems very daunting on the surface to go, man, how am I going to compete with all the guys that are in Whole Foods or, you know, but when you look at these companies, they've been around a long time. Most of them have been around over a decade, maybe two decades before they got to where they're at. So they all started small and then worked their way up to where they're, where they are now. But, you know, you guys live in a time where, you can go direct to consumer. You don't need the whole foods of the world to carry your product or whatever it is, whatever retail location is pushing their, their stuff. You can just go direct to the consumer. And, but you have to come up with obviously all the fundamental components of the business to make it work for you. But um, yeah, to go back to your question, I love the consumable market. It's forever. People will always need to consume things. Um, and health is just one that, you guys probably don't care a ton about right now, but when you get to my age, you get into your forties, health is like the whole game and just staying as, as young as you can. Uh, that's another great industry. Um, that's more the beauty industry. Um, not really my bag, but, um, I can see how that industry, uh, would do really well for, for somebody, you know, if they were into it, cause that's forever too. Well, your t-shirts are forever. I was going to say your hair turned out way better than mine. I figured you'd go (laughs) something on the beauty side. So at least on the hair. I got a lot of gray hair though. You know, I I got hair, but a lot of it's gray. So it's, you know, I know the feeling I got to stop launching companies. That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. All right. You guys good.
Well, hey, we're uh, thankful we'll let you get back to work. We're uh, extremely grateful that you're able to take time out of your day to talk to us. So, Absolutely, man. Yeah. And then, you know, if you guys have any other questions, I'm happy to jump on in the future and address those concerns and, and uh, answer any questions I can. All right. Round of applause, guys. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much. I'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See ya.